some words from the first letter of John. See how much the Father loves us. His love is so great that we are called God's children. And so in fact we are. Our love should not just be words and talk. It must be true love, which shows itself in action. Let us love one another, because love is of God. Whoever loves knows God and is a child of God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. Amazing God, we name you as Father. We honour you as King. We are awed by your power and glory. Unable to find the words, we sit in silent adoration. Gentle God, we know you in your providing. We experience you in your sheltering. We are embraced by your grace and generosity. Comfortable in your presence, we sit in silent adoration. Self-emptying God, Christ who came to us in humility and obedience, shared our vulnerability in humanity, delighted in our very physicality, minds unable to comprehend, we sit in silent adoration. Life-filling God, your spirit enthuses us with faith, hope and love. She transforms our frailty to confident beauty, empowers us for lives of obedient service. That we might begin to believe this is so, we sit in silence. Eternal love, creator, redeemer, sustainer, mother, brother, friend, father, son, spirit, marvelling and delighting in the mystery of faith, we offer our praise in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, which in the New Testament section is page 248 in the Church Bibles. 
Your life in Christ makes you strong, and his love comforts you. You have fellowship with the Spirit, and you have kindness and compassion for one another. I urge you then to make me completely happy by having the same thoughts, sharing the same love, and being one in soul and mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble towards one another, always considering others better than yourselves. And look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. The attitude you should have is the one that Christ Jesus had. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to become equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like man and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. For this reason, God raised him to the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name. And so in honour of the name of Jesus, all beings in heaven, on earth, and in the world below will fall on their knees and all will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, again starting at verse 1, which is page 217. <clears throat> I may be able to speak the languages of men and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. I may have all knowledge and understand all secrets. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains. But if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burnt. But if I have no love, this does me no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up, and its faith, hope, and patience never fail. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will cease. There is knowledge, but it will pass. For our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial. But when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings and thinking were all those of a child. Now that I am a man, I have no more use for childish ways. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. It is love, then, that you should strive for. The old hymn, 
Take my life and let it be, ends with these two verses. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself. And I will be ever, only, all for thee. Our theme today is Take My Heart and the idea that stewardship includes our attitudes. And it's not entirely an accident that we're doing this on St. Valentine's Day, though it's uh, useful as a thing to make us think about what love is. This is a day when one particular kind of love, romantic love, becomes the focus of a lot of expense and not a little anxiety for some people. A lot of expectation and sometimes a fair amount of disappointment. And so I think it's appropriate to think a little bit about the role that our hearts, our wills and our attitudes play in our Christian discipleship. Because it's in thinking about our hearts and our wills that we begin to think, well, how does that affect the way we use everything else that God has given us? Our talent, our time, our treasure. Sometimes it seems to me that the sermons that are the most obvious are the least simple to write. And the things that we already know intuitively can be the hardest and the least comfortable for us to reflect upon. Certainly I came in early this morning to rewrite my sermon because I wasn't happy with it, so who knows what I've written in the end. But the reality is, I think for a lot of us, the demands of discipleship are things that we like to avoid thinking about too much because it's much nicer just to get on with life. The two readings we heard this morning, it seems to me within them are three important themes that come through, and we're going to look at those in a fairly general way, although there's enough material in each of those readings to keep us going for an awfully long time, probably a lifetime. The first theme, and the most obvious one, given what day it is, and given one of the readings we had, is the theme of love. And yes, I think it's one of those that is the most difficult to begin to get our heads around, not least because actually English is a pretty useless language in this respect. We use the same word to describe anything from our enjoyment of ice cream, I love ice cream, to sexual attraction between two people. I'm so in love with whoever it is. It's a very widely used word. We love ice cream, we love watching television, we love our clothes, we love our job, we love our cat, we love people. And this 1 Corinthians reading is very popular for weddings nowadays. I don't know how many times you've heard it down the years when you've been conducting weddings. I've only done five weddings and I think four of them chose that reading. 
And there's actually a misunderstanding of what that is about that actually inspires people to use it for weddings. And I think that's because in our contemporary translations, it uses the word love, which for us means something different than the word that is used. It very often gets confused, a bit of a Greek lesson coming up, or a bit of Greek revision for the clever people, with eros, erotic love, romantic or sexual love. That's what people think that that, that passage is about sometimes. And actually it isn't. It's about agape, or agape, depending where you went to school, love. Um, in the older translations of the Bible, that's often translated as charity. And it is usually the word that we talk about as being Christian love. We often talk about agape love as the love that we have as Christians. Just to prove I can read a commentary or two, and I know the odd Greek word, um, the Bible in the New Testament uses three words for love. It uses agape, which is the Christian love, the, the charity, the caritas kind of love. It uses phileo, the word we get Philadelphia from, uh, which means friendship love, or sometimes it's in terms of brotherly love. Philadelphia means brotherly love, but a friendship love. And then indirectly, there's storge, which means family love or affection. Now, don't worry about the Greek lesson. That's really not important. What is important is that we start to get our heads around what love means in the terms of what Jesus calls his followers to do. And by and large, it's the word agape that's used. If you're a Greek scholar, you'll know that the end of John's Gospel uses two of the words, but we're not going that line today. So I want to start by saying that love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Sorry about that if you thought it was. I'm sure you didn't, but it's not. Love is more of an attitude, a mindset, a willingly made decision to see ourselves and other people in a certain way. I don't know if you noticed it when Grace was reading it for us, but that hymn to love in 1 Corinthians spends more time telling us what love is not like and what it doesn't do than what it is like and what it does do. So love is not about roses on Valentine's Day, lovely though they may be, and love is not a roll of sweets from your minister, however weird and wonderful that might be. Love actually isn't about what we get, it's about what we give. It's not about people being kind and generous towards us, though that's kind of them expressing it. But it's about us being gentle and patient and long-suffering towards other people. So it's not a me-centered thing, isn't love. It's something that goes outwards from us. We give love, if you like. It's something that has to be given to exist. It's not a commodity we aspire to, old, to own. So it tells us that love is not vain or conceited. It doesn't think itself more important than it is. It doesn't want to be noticed and acknowledged. It doesn't need to be recognized, and it doesn't need to be rewarded. Now, that's not that easy, really, is it? Because if we're honest... 
Actually, isn't it really nice when somebody notices that you do something for them? You know, it makes you feel good that somebody noticed that you did it. And don't we all like it when people say thank you, say thank you for something we've done? And don't we all want to be getting a little bit of attention? We do, because we're human. And our love is not yet perfect. But love is not about me, me, me. It doesn't need to be thanked and rewarded. It just does, because it is. Love is not ill-mannered or irritable. Oh, dear. It's quite easy, isn't it? To say, well, of course we know that. We've ticked that one off. We're not irritable or ill-mannered, are we? Of course not. And then, well, if you're like me, you can actually find yourself muttering and mumbling because you've been taken advantage of. You know, you've put yourself out for somebody. <sighs> mutter, mutter, mumble, mumble, mumble. Or nobody says thank you. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You've done something, you've worked hard, and not one person said thank you. Or somebody perhaps tells us off for something. They pick us up on something we've done wrong. And, and rather than being gracious about it, we mutter and mumble and oh, we're rude and we shout back at them. How dare you tell me off for that? Please don't tell me off today. But it's so easy. We know that we shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be ill-mannered or irritable. But when we're tired, when we're stressed, when we feel taken advantage of, that's how we become. Love isn't selfish or envious. Love doesn't look after number one. Doesn't always want its own way, when it wants it, how it wants it. Love accepts that other people have other needs and other desires. Love doesn't lust after what other people have. And lust isn't just a sexual thing. It's about an attitude to all sorts of things. Coveting somebody else's car, or their house, or their job, or their family, or their freedom, or their money. We don't do things like that, do we? Well, actually, yes, we probably do. Because if we're honest, we're all human. And we all make mistakes. And it can be the same with churches, you know. We can envy some other church who've got a fantastic building and superb children's and youth work and a great big organ and an enormous choir and an orchestra and goodness knows what and a really good preacher. Or whatever it is we think is going to make us happy. But that's not love. Love would say, that's fantastic that they've got that. What about us? What have we got? Which is equally fantastic. We've got a piano. We've got people who will come and share their gifts of music with us. We've got great people who live locally and some who travel in a distance to be with us. We are who we are. And we are loved by God as we are. So we should accept ourselves as we are. Love doesn't bear grudges and is not content with evil. I wonder if you've ever heard about these family feuds that go on for generations and generations. 
Maybe you're nicer up here than people are down south. But I just occasionally come across people who, we don't speak to them. Well, why don't you speak to them? Oh, we don't. If our father didn't speak to him, his father didn't speak to him, and his father before him didn't speak to them. Well, what's that all about? Oh, don't know, but we don't speak to them. Bearing grudges is incredibly destructive. And it stands in the way of love. Love isn't going to have any truck with grudge bearing or evil or that kind of unhealthy attitude. Because things that are not love or not driven by love ultimately are destructive. And they destroy the person who does it. If we bear grudges, the person we hurt is us. If we're grumpy and irritable, actually it's probably us that we're hurting. If we're selfish, it's us we hurt. But the mystery of love is that it actually gives us the fulfillment and happiness that we long for. It's not a magic spell that makes everything all right. Love is, in the words of an Indian colleague of mine, flipping hard work. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of determination. It risks being abused, insulted, and taken for granted. And it's really interesting that twice in that passage from Corinthians, we are told that love is patient. Have a look when you get home. The beginning and the end. Twice he says love is patient. That's not my greatest attribute, I have to confess. But love is a patient thing to have. And love is tenacious. It realizes there aren't quick fixes. That life is complicated. And that the good and best answer may not be the first one we think of. Love is about being there for the long haul. Not for chocolates and flowers and champagne, but the tough reality of struggle and failure. Love finds happiness in the pursuit of truth. It's hopeful and kind and faithful. Love is not a kind of pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking that everything is going to be hunky-dory. But it is a positive realism. It will recognize and name and challenge that which is ugly and evil. I don't mean physical attributes. I mean ugly in its characteristics. But it does it in a way that allows beauty and truth to emerge instead. Love is the very heart of the Christian gospel. It's the reason Jesus came and lived among us. It's the motivation for what happens at Calvary. It's what draws every one of us here to its source, to the God who created us. It is, if you like, the prime mover, the origin of all we do. But mysteriously, it is also the goal. It's what starts us off and it's where we're headed. Is about love. Scripture tells us that God not only acts in love, but God is love. God loved and loves the world so much. In fact, God loves the whole cosmos so much that he sent Jesus. 
And this sort of leads us on to looking at that second passage from Philippians, another great early church hymn that expressed something of the mystery of what is called Christ's kenosis. Another Greek word. Sorry, I had a bit of a Greek word fest this week. Kenosis is self-emptying. Jesus emptied himself. He poured himself out. Christ had it all. He had the glory of heaven, angels, God, the Spirit, all there, absolutely everything. And what did he do? He was humble and he walked the path of obedience, becoming a man, a human being, and sharing our life. I suspect if you went and asked a careers advisor or a life coach, they wouldn't use words like humility and obedience. It's not the kind of thing you get in a self-help book or a motivational speech. But these were the characteristics of Jesus Christ, which ought to be developing in his followers. And they should be challenging to us in our day and age and in our context. As I read those words, I found myself thinking back to when I was quite little, the age of some of our Sunday school children, and you would be asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I guess you can remember being asked that as well. And the answers would be teacher or a nurse, something like that from the girls. Most of the boys wanted to be a train driver or a policeman or a fireman. We had our ambitions and our dreams, but on the whole... They were quite modest, things that actually would be good for society. Now, I haven't asked our children, but if you ask most children nowadays, well, it'll be a footballer, or a pop star, or a model. I'm a model if you come from London. The aspirations have shifted from what they were in times gone by. It's all about fame and money and personal gratification. Why do you want to be a footballer? Well, I'll earn lots of money. I can have a big house and, lots, and a big car. Why do you want to be a pop star? Because I'll be famous and everybody will see me on telly. We can't blame the children for that because it's actually a reflection of a society that we and other adults have allowed to develop where individualism gratification and wealth are seen as what makes you worthwhile, what is seen as success. And one of the challenges for us as a church and for us as individual followers of Jesus is to be countercultural. It's a nice phrase. Our job is to affirm the worth of every person and not measure that in pound sterling, the postcode you live in, the number of letters after your name, or whatever else it might be. We are called to be humble and obedient. So just a few words on those to draw this time towards its close. Humility is something that's really often misunderstood. I suspect all of us are aware of Charles Dickens' character, Uriah Heep. It was ever so humble. I don't know what his accent was like, but he was ever so humble. 
Of course, he wasn't, but he thought he was. And the other risk is that of being a doormat. And if I'm honest, in church, I meet far more doormats than Uriah Heaps. Being a doormat says, you know, actually, my feelings don't matter. I'm not important. Just walk all over me. The trouble is, actually, our feelings do matter. And most of the doormats I know, and I have been a doormat in my time, eventually explode. And that can be anger, it can be bitterness, it can be tears, it can be all three and probably a whole lot more besides. That's not being humble. Humility is about accepting ourselves as we are and believing that we are good at something, that we've got something to offer without flaunting it or thinking we're more important than other people. If we are truly humble, we will have a good sense of self-esteem, which will enable us to be generous to other people. Truly humble people can receive compliments. You know, they don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, it was nothing. They will accept it. It's something that we find hard, but we need to learn to receive compliments and praise humbly. But if we are truly humble and have good self-esteem, we don't need to be praised or rewarded all the time. We actually are okay. It's what you know, these sort of psychologists call the I'm okay, you're okay kind of model. Humble people are Christ-like people. Christ was a humble person. And then obedience. A very out-of-fashion word. And one that needs a little bit of thought. Because being obedient doesn't mean being a robot who just obeys commands unthinkingly. We're not computer-programmed things. We are individuals. And God has made us individual. The person who does as they're told without ever asking any questions or expressing any opinions is not in a good place. They're not growing as a person. And the chances are that sooner or later, they will rebel. And I guess we've all met people for whom that's the case. They grew up in a very strict home or a strict school or a strict church. No questions allowed, just do as I say. And eventually, some of them snapped, some of them rebelled. Sometimes granted, you have to say to children, because I say so. And who knows, maybe sometimes I may even think I need to say it to my congregation. Not yet, but maybe I will. There are times when we have to say, do it now and do it this way. But on the whole, we obey because we understand why. And we're more likely to obey because we understand why. And that's the important thing for us as Christians. Our obedience is not a blind rule following. It's a chosen response based on growing in understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. If we had time, which we don't, because I'm going to go over again for two weeks running, so I'm going to be in big trouble. If we looked in the Gospels, we would see that Jesus was not a doormat, and he was not an automaton, but he was definitely humble, and he was definitely obedient to his call. He was fully human. And so humility and obedience had to be expressed in the way that we can express them. He walked obediently the path that took him to Calvary, 
And why? Because he loves us. And because God loves us. And so we come back full circle to that starting point that God loves us. God is for us. God wants us to find fulfillment in our lives. Stewardship is not just a matter of what we can do and what we can give. It's about who we are too. Humility, obedience and love. And now let's come to God with our prayers of intercession. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to dance to the beat of your heart. Yet sometimes we feel like we've barely begun to learn to walk. Like toddlers, we wobble and weave. Reaching for support and sometimes tumbling over in our endeavours. We're glad to discover your gentle hands ready to catch us, to brush away our tears, and to set us on our way once more. Lord, we ask that you would teach us to pray with the beat of your heart, to love with your heart of compassion, to weep with you, And to rejoice with you. Like children, we list our requests, wanting you to make everything well at no cost to us. But we are ready to hear your gentle rebuke, to grow in our own love, and to respond in humble obedience to your voice. We pray for the children and young people whose lives intersect with our own, at home, at work, at church. Help us to show them how much they are valued just as they are, to love them unconditionally and unstintingly. Help us to show them in our lives that materialism and individualism are not the only option, but the way of Christian discipleship offers life in all its fullness. We pray for young adults making their way in the world, many working hard to achieve academic qualifications in the hope of securing a rewarding career, others seeking celebrity in the hope of gratification, and still others disillusioned or disadvantaged, who see themselves as failures even before they begin. Show us how we can support them in their earnest endeavours and offer an alternative worldview so that they might indeed find true enrichment of life. We pray for men and women in military service, for our nation and indeed for all nations. Whilst some choose this path, others are conscripted, and all live daily with the reality of injury or death, as obediently they follow the commands of others. Recognising the complexity of international relations 
We pray for an end to warfare and a safe return of all these people to their homes. We pray for those whose lives are lived in the public eye, especially those deemed celebrities. As personal relationships become the stuff of gossip, as private errors are published in magazines and newspapers, help us to remember that behind the stories are real, vulnerable people. Help us to treat others as we would wish to be treated. We pray for any we know who are unwell in body, mind or spirit, asking that you would bring healing and hope to their situations. We pray for those who feel they have little or no worth, who are weighed down by past failures or present struggles, who are unable to accept compliments or find their hearts filled with bitterness or anger. Grant to them release and the refreshment of your spirit's touch. And lastly, we pray for ourselves, that we would always be sure and certain of your love for us, that we would grow in humility, able to value who we are without envying others or seeking self-aggrandizement, and that we would have the courage to follow obediently your call on our lives, to walk with Jesus, to dance to the beat of your heart. Loving, gracious, generous God, accept these prayers which we offer in the name of Jesus. Amen.